Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Good morning once again, everybody, uh, and welcome to Christian Fellowship Free Church Online. Uh, If you have your Bibles, your apps, whatever it is you're using, go ahead and open up to Daniel. Um, We're going to be in Daniel 3 this morning. Um, As you turn in there, I'd like to thank um, all of the team of Grace Place who uh, has been working to uh, post videos on our website of uh, Grace Place videos of them uh, teaching, leading uh, our kids and families in um, reading scripture and singing songs and continuing to teach our kids uh, who God is and what, um, that God loves them and um, revealing God to them uh, through scripture, through song, through just the love and care and time that it takes uh, to make those videos. So thank you, everybody uh, involved in Grace Place. We've been posting those usually Sunday afternoon, um, and they're up on the website, churchinroscovillage.org, and you can go and find all of them. We'll have a new one up this afternoon. So uh, thank you again to everybody um, that has been part of that. And so we are in Daniel 3 this morning. This is uh, the account in Daniel 3 of Nebuchadnezzar and his golden image that he makes. And before we jump in, I just want to tell you a funny story is that uh, I was once teaching this passage. I was teaching at a camp where I was speaking for third and fourth grade boys all week long. Um, And I wanted to teach this story. And so I tried to simplify it as best I could to like take, um, I changed the Bible names and, uh, you know, I made the story about peer pressure because that's a lot of what this story is about. But I made it about peer pressure, about disobeying in school, and really tried to tailor it to these uh, young boys. And about halfway into my story, one of the kids sticks his hand up. So I call on him. And he says, you know, Tim, this is uh, like a story in the Bible about Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. Did you know that? And I was just stuck in my tracks, like trying to make this story and break it down and simplify it to to these young boys when uh, God's word doesn't need any changing. God's word doesn't need uh, any manipulation. His word is powerful and impactful and great on its own, and it is for everyone. Um, and that story just always makes me uh, laugh to think that I was somehow going to do better than what God has done already. Um, and I won't, and I can't. So we're going to stick with scripture this morning. So um, today we are presented with an issue, a question that really everyone still wrestles with, that we still wrestle with even today, and we are currently wrestling with. And that is this, in the hardships of life, in the times of darkness and persecution, or when God says no, will you, can you still worship? Will you pursue God when it's hard to? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Daniel 3. So uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, God, we thank you even for the rain, um, and we thank you for giving us breath in our lungs this morning, that no day is wasted, that you gave us today for a reason, and we thank you for that. God, we pray that in the midst of everything going on, Lord, we ask that you would put an end to this virus, that it would be done and stopped in its tracks right now, that there would be healing around the world, that that you would do what only you can do and put an end to all of this and and do it in such a way that there is clearly no doubt that you are in control. Lord, Psalm 34 tells us that your eyes are toward the righteous and that your ears are toward their cry. It says that your face is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, you hear and you deliver them from troubles. You are near to the brokenhearted. You save the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you deliver them out of all. Lord, we ask for you to do that, not only in the case of the spread of this virus, but just in the case of the pain and hardship and suffering and and brokenness of this world, that you would save, that you would deliver, that you would be you in the midst of our lives. God, as we open your word this morning, you have a message for us. Lord, I pray that any distractions, anything, you would move all of those things, remove all of those things so that we can hear from you this morning. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, for what you have done and what you are doing. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to jump in. We're going to read uh, Daniel 3. We're going to read a big chunk of it and then we'll go back and talk about it. So starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 
whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's stop there. Some are going to say, some theologians say that this happens um, relatively shortly after the events of chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he wants interpreted, and he wants the, not only the interpretation of the dream, but he wants the person interpreting it to also tell him what the dream was, to kind of justify and solidify what it was uh, that they were going to say to him. And no one can do it. Daniel prays. Daniel asks God for wisdom. He grants it to him. Daniel gets knowledge of what the dream and the interpretation was. And it was this giant statue that I drew perfectly last week um, that was, had a head of gold, and then from there it kind of de deteriorated uh, in value of different metals, but strength grew, um, and it was looking at the future. It was looking at the future of what was to come. And so some say, uh, theologians say, that the accounts of chapter 3 happen one to two years after this, after that dream. Some say 10 to 15 years. doesn't really matter, because regardless of the time frame, what we can see here is that King Nebuchadnezzar clearly has not learned his lesson about God's power and glory about the fact that God is in control of all things all the time. We saw it even last week in verse 47 of chapter 2 when the king says that your God is God of gods. He's one of a bunch of gods. See, he never actually truly believed that the God that Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego served was the one true God, but one of a bunch. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image of gold. Like I said, remember in chapter 2 in his dream, he was the head of gold. He was the one, the, the powerful, brilliant, awesome one. And after him would come nations that would be inferior to him. And so maybe he wants to prove that he's not just a head of gold, but he's the whole thing. He's all gold. He truly is the best and greatest king, and his kingdom is the best and greatest that will ever be. Whatever his motivation is, it's clearly founded in ego and pride. And when those are your driving fuel, destruction follows. And so he has a statue made that is 60 cubits tall by 6 cubits wide. And I realize we're in America. We don't even do the metric system, so I will break this down to you. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. So this thing was 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. It also was on some sort of pedestal, some sort of um, platform that so this thing easily reached up into 120, 150 feet tall. It's probably, when it says it was made of gold, was probably just gold plated. You would make the structure out of something else uh, and then plate it, cover it in gold. It probably isn't solid gold all the way through, but then again, Nebuchadnezzar had a huge ego, so who, knew, who knows, he might have made the whole thing out of gold. And so Babylon has many buildings. We've talked about Nebuchadnezzar's pride and how he loved to be able to uh, make these big, grand buildings. And Babylon had its own little skyline, its own little uh, downtown area with these tall buildings. But this, this statue was built about six miles south of Babylon, the plain of Dura. Think flat nothingness. Think like an airport, like just nothingness for miles which means that regardless of the direction you were coming from, that you would see this thing shining in the daylight. For miles and miles away, you would see this statue. 
Think about those times when you leave Chicago and you start driving back into coming back home. And that first time you see that glimpse of the Sears Tower miles and miles away and you think, okay, I'm home. Same kind of idea here except you would see this statue miles and miles away and the idea was you would think, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, how great. And so we see in verse 2 that he invites all of the bigwigs, officials upon officials, Some of these titles, commentators don't even know what they did or what these roles were. But you have a title, you have the illusion of power. And Nebuchadnezzar wants anyone with a title, anyone with any kind of power, real or implied or fake, he wants them all there to see how great he is. He wants them all there for this dedication. And so the day finally arrives and everyone is gathered, but it's not a simple ribbon cutting. We see in verse 4 that this is forced Worship. When you hear the music, you bow down and worship. And if you don't, you die. Nebuchadnezzar is very black and white. It's very do this or, or die. He says, O oh, peoples, nations, languages, regardless of who you are, where you are from, what language you speak, music is the universal language. And when the music plays, you bow down. Music has an effect on all of us. Your mood, your situation, your whole day can be changed for the better when you hear that one song. I'm sure if you thought about your life, you can make a playlist of songs that define the different eras throughout your life. Certain songs take you back to a a time and a place and a feeling and a moment. My first year, uh, well, my second year, my first year at Trinity, my second year in college, my roommate, we used to have to get up roughly around the same time, and so uh, my roommate was... uh, he usually picked the music for the alarm, and most of the time it was jamming by Bob Marley, and that was how we started our day, was jamming. And uh, it's hard not to have a little bump in your step when you hear that song, and like, no matter what's coming the rest of the day, it always kind of helped us start the day off in a good mood, just being able to kind of glide through getting ready for the day. Uh, you know, when I hear uh, anything by Jimmy Buffett, um, it takes me back to when I was a little kid and playing uh, in the backyard in the summertime with my parents and my family and playing in the pool. and like That just always takes me back to, to good times when I was a kid. Sarah and mine's first dance at our wedding was always by Frank Sinatra. And so I hear that and I can picture uh, my beautiful wife and us dancing around the floor and surrounded by family and friends and how perfect of a day that was. Music has this ability to trigger nostalgia, trigger feelings and emotions in us. And when it comes to music and church, well, people have all kinds of opinions about that. There is a whole time frame in the not very recent past, I'm talking like the 90s, that a lot of people will refer to as the worship wars, where people got angry, churches split, churches shut down over guitars and drums in a worship service. Now, there's other things involved there too, but a lot of that conversation had to do with whether or not you could have a drum kit in church. People have all kinds of opinions about church music. It's too loud. It's too soft. Too many old songs. Too many new songs. Too much guitar. Not enough guitar. Hymns versus contemporary. It's too emotive. It's not theological enough. Everyone has a voice. Everyone wants to share their two cents. I think there is a reason why the Bible is not super strict on what is and isn't worship music and what is and isn't should be done when we gather. Because we are free to be creative, to use the gifts and talents that God has given us to worship him. And so for the people who show up to church late intentionally or log in late intentionally because I don't like the music, let me make it very clear to you. It's not about you. Worship isn't for you. We worship because of who God is and because we are built Built within us is this desire and craving and longing to have a connection and relationship with the one true God of all existence. We are made to worship. We're going to talk about that this morning. We are made to worship. It is built into us, and we are going to worship. It all depends on what the object of your worship is. Now, music has an effect on us, and because of that, music can stir up emotions and thoughts and nostalgia. We have to be careful about what's real and what's fake when it comes to worship. 
Because there's a line between wanting to do things and do them well to the glory of God and then do things well because we want to make a show of ourselves. What's the ultimate point of worship? What's the focus? Because when we make things about ourselves or each other or things outside of God getting the glory, we have lost sight of the point. Here in Daniel 3, it looks like a worship service. You got people coming together. You got people bowing down. You got music from every kind of which way. You got all kinds of people united together. I mean, looking at it from a distance, you got a a multicultural worship service with all kinds of different music and everybody united together. Looking at it from a distance, you would say, wow, that's impressive. That's an awesome church. But what's the object of the worship? Because in Daniel 3, this is forced and fake worship. It is because the object of it is Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't even know if we can call this worship, even though it's worship to a false god, a false idol. I don't even know if we can call this worship because worship is a choice. And there's a grave difference between command and choice. And there's a difference between God and idols, God and other religions, because false religions, false gods, idols in all different degrees, that's a contract relationship. That's you do this and I will give you something. It's a contract relationship trying not to lose favor with your false god, with your idol. You give your life, you give your money, give yourself, give your brain, give your mind, give your hard drive, and that thing will give you a temporary relief of pain. Be clear, you're going to return to the pain eventually, so you're going to need more of it, but I'll take it away for just a little while. And as soon as you have nothing left to give or you don't have enough to give, the world turns on you, leaving you broken and beaten. Give me your time, money, hard drive, mind. Give me everything. And if you don't or can't or won't, I will punish you. Everyone bows down to the image of gold. But that's not real worship because real worship is a choice. It's an expression of the heart. It is a response. The only forced element in real, true worship is the experience of the goodness of God causing us to have to respond. Because we taste and see that the Lord is good and we have an encounter with God Almighty and you can't help but respond to the goodness of God, to the majesty and might and holiness and awesomeness of him. Not that you are forced to out of duty or because of punishment, but out of response to the goodness because in your very soul you were created to worship and the object of that worship is supposed to be God and when you have those moments with him, you have to respond because it just makes sense. Worship is an I get to situation, not an I have to. Let me explain what I mean because I know I just said We encounter God and we have to worship. I'm talking about the experience of even approaching God is an I get to rather than an I have to. Because too often we come in and we talk about Sunday morning, we talk about church life, and it's I have to be there. I have to be there for appearance's sake because what are they going to say if I don't show up? I have to be there or else how are things going to be done? My area of ministry, I'm the only one who can do it the way I know it should be done, so it's not going to get done right if I don't do it. I have to because this is just what I do. It's just the routine I'm in. When Sunday is about obligation, we risk losing the heart of worship. We risk our ability to make ourselves available to hear from the Holy Spirit, to have that encounter with God in the first place. Sunday should be an I get to. And parents, dads especially, I want to say this to you. What is the view of church that you have, what are you modeling for your kids? What view of church are you modeling for your kids? Because they learn from you. So let me ask, what are you teaching them about the importance of community, about the importance of gathering, not just Sundays, but gathering with God's people, even virtually? What are you teaching your family? What are you teaching your kids about that? Because the importance that you put on these things, your kids will see that, learn that, live that out. So if Sunday is an obligation and a burden, they're going to see it as an obligation and a burden. Or if Sunday is just, this is what we do unless something more important comes up, what they learn is gathering with God's people is important until something more important comes. 
See, there's a difference between I get to and I have to. And your kids understand that difference. This shouldn't be a burden or a task to be checked off. This is a gift and joy and opportunity and celebration that we get to gather with God's people. We get to gather as a community to lift each other up, to encourage one another, and to, as one people, one voice united, worship the God who made us and knows us and loves us. Even now, even this morning, with doing these things at home, we're having to do this virtually, I hope that you have been able to cultivate a sort of revised rhythm to your Sundays. I hope you've been able to build some fun into what is going on here. Maybe you dress up on a Sunday. Maybe next Sunday you dress up and look fancy, even though you're doing this in your living room. Maybe you make a special breakfast for it. Whatever it is that you can do, you can do things. Parents, you have the opportunity, you have the chance to be even more hands-on than normal in helping your kids learn and understand the importance of getting to worship. This is a blessing. And even if you don't have kids, gentlemen, for those of you who are married, fellas, lead your wife, set this up, make this important, make this vital. Invite your friends to join in and be watching alongside you. This is an opportunity to engage and continue to engage and not just show up because I have to. This is a blessing that we get to worship together. Even a few decades ago, we wouldn't have had even this. Well, this isn't our most favorite way to do Sundays, right? We want to be together. We want to all get to see each other and be together again. But even just a few decades ago, we wouldn't have had this. We wouldn't have Zoom get-togethers. We wouldn't be able to even type responses to one another. This is a blessing. Worship is a choice and it's a mindset. It's a choice and a mindset that says, I'm going to choose to engage with God. Even though the circumstances are not ideal, I'm going to choose to engage with God because I know he's going to show up. But with that choice comes the question, what is the object of your worship? Because as I've said, you're made to worship. It's built into your soul, into your very DNA. So what are you worshiping? Because you're going to worship. History has shown us that because humanity is inherently evil and rebellious, over and over again, we choose to worship things and people other than God. Paul, talking about that in Romans 1.21, says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is really where... Israel has found themselves. That's why they're under Nebuchadnezzar, because they had fallen into idolatry. They had fallen into idol worship, and God allows Nebuchadnezzar to take over, to plunder them, and be, make them his subjects. Idolatry is when we take and make more of creation, make more of the creature than the creator. Who is it that you're worshiping? See, idolatry is not just outdated Old Testament concept. It's not this thing that it's on, and this is for us today. It's something we deal with and battle every day. I've said it often to you guys. A good way, a good idea to see what it is that you actually worship, what's the most important thing in your life, look at your bank account, look at your calendar, look at your screen time. That'll give you a good idea of what you worship. Where's your money go? Where's your time go? How much time are you spending on social media? How much time are you spending on Netflix and, and just wanting to build up likes and followers and, and just disconnect from the world? See, idolatry is not this ancient thing that we have grown and evolved past. Look even in your living room right now. My guess is your living room, much like mine, much like pretty much everybody, is set up how? So that all of the seating is facing the TV. Chances are that's how your room is set up. It's set up so how can everyone best, if they're all sitting in the room, watch TV? Is, t is television bad? No. But do we have an overwhelming focus on it where it drives the very setup of our house and living situation? The room that we do our living in? Yeah. 
We worry and fret and get upset about our Wi-Fi speed and whether or not the grocery store has a specific kind of brand of food or drink that we want. Our preferences, our desires, that's the most important thing. Our desire to avoid discomfort at all costs, our comforts become our idols. And comfort isn't a bad thing. Being comfortable isn't a bad thing. But when the creature is elevated in importance over the creator, now we have an issue. A pastor I listen to says it this way, it's when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, that becomes a very bad thing. See, idolatry is not something old and outdated. It's still here. How are you spending your time in this isolation, in this stay-at-home order? How are you spending this time? Don't waste it. Don't waste the pandemic. Don't waste it worshiping your phone, worshiping your timeline, waiting for the next like and follow. Don't waste it on the hate and anger. Don't waste it on your own ego and pride of trying to be right all the time and trying to fight with every person who disagrees with you on whether or not we should open or not open and how we should do it and who's right and who's wrong. Don't waste your time on those things. God doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste his time and he's not going to waste your time. Even in this season, even in this changed, weird world that we're living in right now, God's not going to waste this time. He's not pressing pause and just hanging out. He's not going to say, you know what? I wanted you to pursue me. I want you to pursue me, but I realize it's a little hard and difficult right now, so take your time. Whenever Chicago opens back up, then you can engage with me again. I'll be here for you. He's saying, no, now, come. I want you now. I want you now. He's not pressing pause or just hanging out till we get through this. God is at work now. He's doing something now. He wants to cultivate and shape and grow you now. Do not let the idols that we are constantly surrounded by distract you from God wanting to work in and through you now. This scene in Nebuchadnezzar in in Daniel 3, as the music plays and you have thousands upon thousands of people bowing down all at the same time, it must have been quite a vision to have all of these people bowing down. But it wasn't everyone. Let's jump back in at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The Chaldeans, some of the wise men, some of those guys who stood before the king and couldn't interpret his dream and couldn't give him the dream in chapter 2. And so um, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all promoted over these guys. And so they're bitter and angry and jealous. They come And they start stirring things up. See, there's always going to be somebody who is there to point a finger and and share some hate. Even when you're doing the right thing, there's always going to be people who are going to try and poke and start things. These these men come poking holes and come pretending to give great glory to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you are so great. You have made this decree. You You have made this law. Well, there's people who aren't following you. And it's kind of weird, though, that Nebuchadnezzar gets this angry about it, right? Because he knows where these three guys stand. They were there with Daniel with the whole dream situation. 
They were there with Daniel in chapter 1 with the food situation when they first came to Babylon. He knows exactly where these three guys stand in relation to who they worship. And what I think is that this comes back to this idea of worship. See, for Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't understand the difference between force and choice, what true real worship is about, the real relationship that God has with his people, because his God is a hunk of wood. His God is a hunk of metal. There is no relationship there. And so he calls these three together, and they, he gives them this one final chance. When the band plays, you need to worship or die. Worship or you end up in the fire. That might seem like a very harsh, and it is a very harsh way of doing things. And this is actually not the first time Nebuchadnezzar does this. If you look in Jeremiah 29, it talks about him throwing people into fire. This was kind of his go-to punishment. And he says in verse 15, he just kind of throws in this aside in verse 15. I will throw you into the burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who's going to save you from me? from my fiery furnace, from my fiery death. Nebuchadnezzar is a phony king. He is a poor, flawed, cheap imitation of the one true, perfect King Jesus. Much like Satan himself, who thinks himself to be a king, but is not, who is subject to God. Nebuchadnezzar would throw people in the fire. Satan wants to see others destroyed along with him in hell. Who is the God who is going to save these friends? Who is the God who is going to save them from that fiery furnace? The same God who saves us from hell. The same guy, the same God who would come to earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross for us in our place so that we can escape hell and have eternal life with God. Jesus, the one true good king who is in control of all things all the time. And so the the men respond in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar, no need to strike the band back up. We don't need to have a dialogue about this. Our God, whom we serve, can deliver us, will deliver us, and if not, It doesn't change anything. We're not bowing down. Our God will save us. God can save us from your hand. He is bigger, faster, stronger. He's in control of all things all the time. Nebuchadnezzar, you don't seem to get it. So we'll tell you again, he can. He will. He's the one. These three men stand in this court, in the court of the most powerful king in the world, with a a king that has a temper and a rage and a violence in him, and they are not backing down. They are high-ranking officials. They have served the king and served Babylon well. See, this is what a Christian does. You be a good citizen. You serve. You be a good citizen up until you have to compromise being a good Christian. And that line has been crossed, and they refuse to bow down, but rather they chose to stand. They believe God can save them. Our God can save us from your hand and your fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't. Look at verse 18 again. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if he doesn't, even if he won't, it doesn't change our answer, it doesn't change the outcome. We believe our God can save us, but if he won't, we still won't bow down. When you pray and you ask God to move, to save, to heal, to use his power, to put an end to a virus, when we pray and we ask him and we ask him for things all the time, this is the question, this is the situation we are faced with every day that we're faced with right now. We pray and we ask and know that God is powerful, but if God says no, will you still worship? If you don't get your way, if you get a no, will you still worship? When you are living in the midst of the no, can you still worship? If you experience that and are in it, can you still say, God is good and I trust him and I'm going to worship him? Because it's one thing to go in and say, God, I'm going to worship you, knowing full well you might, say, you might not say yes to this. 
God, you're good and awesome, and I'm going to lift up this request to you, and I know you might say no to this, but I'm still going to worship. Even if you don't say yes, I'm still going to worship. And we can believe that and, and, and hold to that and say, yes, of course I'll still worship God, no matter what. We can do that and believe that. And we sound a lot like Peter in his denial of Jesus' denial, right? At the Last Supper, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter says, no way. I'm never walking away from you. That's, I'm never going to do that. There's not a chance. But when we're actually in it, no pun intended, feet to the fire, what do we do? Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to trust God and worship him no matter what all the time. But it's different when you're six weeks into a stay-at-home order. Or there's cancer, or depression, or sorrow, or loss and grief. When you're in the midst of that, when you're living that, when that's on you and you say, I'm still going to go to the altar. See, just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you avoid the hate and pain and suffering and hardship and rage of this life. That's why we're still in the, where we're in. If anything, you become a Christian and things get harder and tougher and messier. And it breaks my heart when people preach this idea that God wants you to just be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you're not those things, then clearly you've done something wrong. But as long as you become a Christian, then you're going to be fine and everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows all the time. That's just not true. To be a Christian is to be someone who emulates and wants to be like Jesus. Jesus ends up broken and dead on a cross. That's the guy we're trying to be like. If you experience pain and suffering, if you're in the midst of God saying no to your request, can you still worship? In Psalm 23, it says, In the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. It doesn't say I'm not in the valley. It says when I'm in the valley. It doesn't mean I'm not walking through it. It means I'm going to walk through it and I'm not going to fear or worry. I'm going to trust that God is with me and for me. Let me make it clear. We're not going to do this perfectly all the time. I don't do this perfectly all the time. I was talking to Daniel this morning. This week just beat me up. Everywhere I looked, there was more evil, more hate, more injustice, more suffering, more pain, more frustration. And it wasn't even related to coronavirus stuff. It was just the world. And then you add to it this drawn-out isolation thing, and I just was tired. And this is church. Even though we're doing this online, this is church, so I can be honest. My gut instinct was not always to run to God and sit and worship at his feet. It was to sit and have a pity party or to just sleep or disconnect from the world. When we have these moments, these days or weeks or months or years where we're just in the darkness and it feels like it's never going to let up, it's going to take intentionally choosing God, intentionally pursuing Him. It's deciding to remember who God is, even in the darkest of moments, to remember who God is. There's been a group of guys, we're in a group chat where we've been reading Proverbs every day, a different proverb every day, the whole chapter, and then we take one of the verses uh, and just share it with each other, and this is kind of the verse we're, we're hanging on to, we're, we're thinking about and dwelling on throughout the day. And it's been a huge help to me to, A, have that accountability, to just make sure I'm getting into Scripture just to enjoy God's Word, but also to like let God speak to me, but also it's been awesome to see God speaking to other guys. It's been this great encouragement to see how God is drawing them to himself. It's been this regular reminder that God is still on the move, that God is not wasting time, that God is doing a work here. I've shared this story before, but it, for this situation, it, it bears repeating. My first year of, uh, my second year of college, a friend of mine, uh, her dad passed away very suddenly. Um, and I remember that day, finding that out and, and praying and praying with a couple of people for her, for her family. And a few days later, my RA came to my room and he said, hey, we're, we're going to go and uh, she wants to worship. She wants to have a, a time of worship and prayer. So we're going to go do that in the, in the girls' dorm. 
uh, a big group of us, our, our floor went, uh, and I remember walking in to the, the lobby of the girls' dorm. It has this like ramp going around it, and then the middle is just like chairs and stuff. I remember walking in, I can see myself walking in, and I can see my RA, Brian, with his guitar. Somebody was on a djembe, and I remember seeing her in the middle of the room in a chair with her mom, and they're just holding each other and crying. And I remember sitting in there, and we worshipped. And this is like 2004, so we sang a lot of Chris Tomlin. And I remember singing about how great our God is. I remember singing about blessed be his name. And all of these different songs, worship songs, about how great God is and how faithful and just and awesome and holy and perfect and set apart he is. And I remember singing that and looking at her and her and her mom just holding each other, weeping and singing and singing and weeping. That's what it looks like to choose in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the pain, to say, I'm still going to the altar. I'm still going to go to worship. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it hurts and my heart is broken, I'm going to go to God because I know who he is. I know he is good all the time. Worshiping God in the pain and suffering is trusting that God is who he says he is. It isn't always easy. It isn't always fun. But when we do that, God will always show up. We're going to get a no from God sometimes. We're going to pray things because God knows better than we do. We're going to get no's, but there's always a reason for God to say no to us. Even though we don't see it or understand it or like it, there's always a reason. I say no to Benjamin sometimes. Not because I'm mean, not because I don't like him, but because I'm trying to keep him safe and happy. And I can't always do both at the same time, and so sometimes i got to choose safe rather than happy. But again, it's not because I don't like him. It's because I want him to be safe. I want him to be protected. God always has our best interest for us at heart. He always wants what is best for us. See, no from God is important, and it can lead to growth. It can lead to us learning what we can't learn sometimes in the yes. On the other side of no is life, is growth. Jesus in the garden sweating blood, anguishing over what's coming, asks for that cup to be taken away. God says no. Jesus goes to the cross and dies and gives freedom and life to sinners. Jesus died on a cross to give us new life with God because God said no to his request. When the disciples are persecuted in Acts, the gospel is spread throughout the world like it had never done, been done before, and it wouldn't naturally if people just stayed in their own little run, in their own little houses, in their own little towns. But they had to run, they had to flee persecution, and so they had to run and get safe, and they took with them the gospel, and it spread all around the world. Just because God says no, just because God gives, lets us walk through the valley of the shadow of death, because it's hard, doesn't mean we stop worshiping. We stay grounded because we know about God and we know who he is and we build on the decisions that we have seen him make in the past and we say, I can trust him. That's what these three did. They trusted God. And let's see how that plays out for them. Verse 19, it says, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven more times hotter than usual. And he made some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Oh, true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage. He has the furnace heated up seven times hotter. Why? That's just mad for mad's sake, because... Fire's going to do what fire's going to do. There was no need to do that. It's just him being angry. He has them bound, and he has the big, strong, mighty men carry them to the furnace to throw them in. They're not quite thrown in, though, because the big, strong, mighty men die, and so the three of them kind of just fall in. 
and they ended up in the furnace. God does not deliver them from the fire. They believed he would, and he lets them go into the fire. And it looks like the bad guys have won. It looks like evil has countered good. But that's not the end of the story, because darkness is not the extinction or the absence of darkness is the absence of light but as soon as light is there and interjected darkness has to flee and so it says nebuchadnezzar runs with haste men of power don't run at this time but he runs with haste because he sees four not three in the furnace and so it says nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door not too close because you know fire hot but he gets and he calls them out he says come out of there and we see Nebuchadnezzar's, the whole situation has changed. In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He calls them out, and they come out, and there's nothing wrong with them. They don't even smell like smoke. We had a fire last night. I showered and changed clothes, and I still smell like smoke. Nothing is wrong with them. But what did get consumed by that fire? The things that got consumed by that fire were the mighty men. And then it says that when they're in the fire, they're walking around unbound. They're walking around unrestrained. The constraints of evil and wickedness got burnt up. The only things that got burnt up in that fire was the evil of Babylon. Nothing of the three followers of God was hurt. And I love that in verse 27. I love when it says all of those bigwigs, all of those officials who were the ones who started this whole mess in the beginning had to come over and testify and see that God was at work. The fact that even when it doesn't look good, God is still in control of all things all the time. And they had to see that firsthand. We see in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar gives this succinct, really beautiful uh, summary of what happened. Hebrews 11 will say that these three men quenched the power of the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, it's true. That's what happened. But then we see in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't understand. He makes this decree. Last week we saw Daniel interrupt the dream, or interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is the God that no one else is like him. He's the top. And here again, no God could do this. No God could rescue these men from the fire. But again, Nebuchadnezzar misses the point. Because God isn't just one among the rest. And true worship doesn't come as a threat of pain and violence. It comes from a love and a desire to know God deeper. Worship of God is not about force and I have to, but I get to. And because of Jesus, we get to in any place and in any way, we get to go boldly before the king of kings in prayer. We can sing out at the top of our lungs, making a joyful noise. We can open God's word at any time in different translations and languages. God has made himself known to us in the person and work of Jesus in and through his word. He has made all of creation. He has made you. He has sent his son to die for you. He is the one true God in control of all things all the time. How can you not worship? Jesus shows up and is always going to show up to deliver. He shows up in the fiery furnace. There's discussions about, is it an angel? Is it Jesus? I tend to think it's Jesus in the fire. I tend to think that this is one of those times that shows this small little picture of what's going to come when he comes to earth. 
when the Messiah shows up, when Jesus, the suffering servant, shows up to die on the cross for our sins, that if you would put your faith in Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, new life would be had and you would escape the power of hell. Hell would have no claim on you, just like the fiery furnace had no claim on these three men because of God. If you would put your faith in Jesus, he rescues us. That's what he does because he is in control of all things at all the time, and he's the only one who could do that. And we're not talking, I mean, when we talk about wanting to worship and being worshiping God, we're not talking about this have to, this burden, this self-righteous, I'm going to work my way to heaven so I'm going to show up to church every week because it's going to earn me points. No, true worship about God is, is looking and having a relationship with him. It's the heart. That's specifically what God says in Psalm 51 in God's word. It says, for you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise these things. True, real worship is humbly coming to God, understanding who God is in relation to who we are, and trusting that he is in control of all things all the time, even when it's dark, even when it's messy, even when we are about to be thrown in or we are actually thrown into the fiery furnace, trusting that God is in control of all things all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you because you are the God in control of all things all the time, and there is none like you, no, not one. God, help us when it's dark and it's hard and day after day we just feel like the world is getting darker and darker. Lord, help us to remember that you are in control, that you are doing a work, that you don't take days off, that you're not wasting this time, that all things will be used for your glory, that you have our best interests at heart, that you are putting all things together for the good of those who love you. God, remind us of that and let that reality fuel us to pursue you, to be the lights in the world, to, to point people to the hope and the life and the grace and the mercy and the power and the majesty and the holiness that is found in you, the new life that is found in putting their faith in Jesus at the cross and his death and resurrection, the hope and peace that can be had here and now by trusting in you by having a relationship with you. And Lord, let that relationship help us to have that relationship with you, not be, not be distracted, not be altered, not be stolen by pride and ego and self-righteousness and arrogance and all of those other things that get in the way. Help us to just truly enjoy being with you and enjoy your presence and enjoy your word. In the way that we enjoy a good cup of coffee or uh, a piece of music or a, a movie and we want more of it we want to tell others about it let us how much more so should we enjoy your presence your word because it is life it is truth oh god give us that hunger and thirst to know you better to know you deeper to never be satisfied with how much we know you but to always want more of you god as we continue to live in this world in the messiness of this world Give us the boldness, give us the patience, give us the energy and the fill us up so that we can pour ourselves out for you, so that we can be the lights of the world you have made us to be, to point others to your glory, for your name to be lifted up. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you have done, what you are doing and what you're going to do. We thank you and praise you. Amen.